All right. So this is what I've been waiting on. This is a good, this is um, exciting stuff. So before we just jump in here, let's just kind of review just a little bit where we left off last week so we're not just, you know, walking into this cold. And if you remember last week, I said, you know, we cannot overstate how important this, this event that's about to take place is. It is, it is a watershed moment for the church. First of all, it's the first gathering of like church leadership to solve a dispute about doctrine. It's our first doctrinal dispute. It's about, and it's a very important one. It's about salvation. How do we, how does one become a follower? How is one saved? That's the question before the council. Uh, so that's a pretty important question. You know, that's that's primary in our doctrine. You know, we can we can have Christian fellowship with other believers who might not hold what we hold in certain points, ter secondary, tertiary. But this is first order. It's an important question, and this determines how the church is going to go forward from here. So this is of utmost importance, especially for us. Well, I mean, just for the church, which we are the church. So um, this is a very decisive or like watershed moment for the church, as I said. So there's been moments in history that, I mean, history hinges on. Like there's just, well, you know, when the Muslims tried to invade Europe, let's say, if they had not been pushed back, we'd all probably be Muslim right now, okay? But they didn't. They were pushed back, so the, Europe remained Christian. Uh, when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown or Lexington, where did he surrender at? <clears throat> when Cornwallis surrendered at Yorktown, Pivotal moment in the history of our country. You know, if, if that had not happened, if we had lost, we'd all be speaking with an English accent and we'd all have a king. You know, that's a that was a big turning point. Uh, when our boys stormed the beaches at Normandy, if they had been pushed back into the sea and not gained that toehold on the beach, beachhead, well, Europe would be Germany, basically. So the world would look very different. Now, this has got kind of moment for the church. If the church had went the other way here and they had said, yes, one must be circumcised and must obey the law of Moses in order to come to Christ, we'd all be looking at a doctrine of salvation by circumcision right now. And we'd just be some sect of Judaism, most likely. It'd just be one of the, you know, you'd have Orthodox Judaism, Hasidic Jews, ultra-reformed Judaism, and you'd have... Christian Jews, basically. I mean, who can say what would have happened, but it wouldn't be like it. We wouldn't be in this church today as it exists right now if this moment in time had gone differently. Of course, God is superintending these events. The Holy Spirit is indwelling these men, so he's in charge. <clears throat> but still, the fact remains, you know, God sovereignly ordains whatsoever comes to pass. And yet he does not violate the will of the creature. So, you know, there's always that tension between God's sovereignty and our volition. People talk about our will. I don't like that word. I think volition is a much better word. We, we, God gave us volition and he created us. We're not automatons walking around like robots. We have our, we have our own volition. We can accept or reject 
we we're responsible for our response. We, we can see that. I see that everywhere now that I'm aware of that, even here. These men's volition over God's sovereignty for this thing to come out the way it did. So uh, let's remember what we kind of said about the Judaizers too before we get started. This is the first time we see the Judaizers. And I just want us to be cognizant of what's happening here. It's real easy to set for us as modern day people who have the entire New Testament at our beck and call and in our hands to say, man, how could they have got this wrong? How, how, did they, how did they get this so wrong? Well, let's remember that these men, they're a, a product of their upbringing. At this point, you know, they're, all they know is Judaism. I mean, that's, they've come up through it their whole lives. The Mosaic Covenant. Yeah, the Mosaic Covenant and the Abrahamic Covenant. So they want two things. They want, us to, they want them to be circumcised in the Abrahamic Covenant. They want them to obey the law of Moses. But let's just not be too quick to judge here, okay? Yeah. Yeah. Um, these men have been in this their entire lives. And it'd be, I can imagine if we didn't have the New Testament, we could make that same mistake very easily. Now, Paul dealt with it. You know, it was dealt with. And thank God for that. But, you know, they, like this quote from this, he says they were not bad people at this point, but given time, their views tightly held, but pulled them so far away from the doctrine of grace that they would become apostate. And if the apostles had capitulated, there would soon have been a Christian doctrine of salvation by circumcision. So similarly today, we must withstand false doctrines of baptismal regeneration and salvation through sacraments. So let's just keep that in mind as we look at what's happening here. Let's, let's read with a humble mind and let the text say what it says. And remember, we don't come to the Bible as reading it as if we're the heroes. Most times we're the we're the, yeah, we're not the hero of the story. You know, the Holy Spirit is the hero. God is the hero. Jesus is the hero. So, uh, yeah, Pharisees. We're the Pharisees. Yes. And in order to figure out how you uh, spell that, it's an I in there. Yeah, yes, <laughs> that's right. So, uh, well, let's just. Whoa, what am I doing in Acts? 23. What chapter are we in? 15. Let me get back there. And let's just start. Well, we'll start at verse 1, I guess. I think we kind of covered uh, right up to verse 6. So uh, 1 through 5 is where we meet the Judaizers. And remember, we talked about Titus. Well, let's just read it. Let's read 1 through 5. So Ben came down from Judea, began teaching the brethren. Okay, we are... We, these men, you know, doesn't say they were sent by the apostles, sent by the church. Doesn't say any of that. They just showed up and started teaching this doctrine. Okay, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, so Paul and Barnabas contradicted them, said, "Whoa, whoa, 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 stop! What are you talking about? I ain't been preaching that." I just went through all of Galatia. Never once did I mention anybody needs to be circumcised or follow the law of Moses. Salvation is by grace, okay? So, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them 
should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders concerning this issue. Those others, Titus is among those others. Okay. Am I right about that? Yes, it is Titus. So we, we looked at that in Galatians. Remember, we went back to Galatians. And looked, Paul kind of recounts this again in Galatians. And he says, Titus was with me when I went up to Jerusalem. That's how we know that. Uh, let's see, verse 3. Therefore, being sent on their way by the church, they were passing through both Phoenicia and Samaria, describing in detail the conversion of the Gentiles, and were bringing great joy to all the brethren. So just notice there, Paul and Barnabas are taking every opportunity to, to encourage the church, encourage the believers, tell them what's happening. They're not just making a beeline for Jerusalem. They're redeeming the time. They said, we're going to pass through all these areas. We're going to teach and preach as we go, right? They're about the Lord's work. No matter what they're doing, no matter where they are, Paul is about the Lord's work. He is just sold out for this, for the gospel. But when they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees, there's an eye right in the middle of there, who had believed, stood up, saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and direct them to deserve the law of Moses. So we kind of covered that last week. Uh, we don't really need to go back over it too much more. I don't remember what all I said about it, but we'll, we'll just keep going. So the verse 6. The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, notice that, they didn't just come together and say, ah, we're, you're, this is not right. They, they talked about it. They heard about it. They talked about it. They had a debate. You know, they didn't just you just exert their authority. So we're not even going to listen to what you have to say. They talked us. They talked it over. They gave them a chance to, to bring their case. Peter stood up and said to them, "Okay, we're about to hear Peter's last words recorded in the Book of Acts. This is it right here. It's the last time we see hear from Peter in this book." <coughs> um. And Peter is going to reason with them on this matter. Okay, notice what Peter doesn't do. The dog is not barking here. It's Peter doesn't stand up and say, I'm Peter, and I'm the first apostle, and I say this is how it's going to go. It's not what happens. He gives he gives a he gives a an argument. He he, he comes with reason. And uh Here's his, here's his, here's his argument. Peter said to them, brethren, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that by my mouth, the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. He's talking about Cornelius right there. He's referring to when he went to Cornelius and he witnessed Cornelius and his whole household receive the gift of the spirit. Okay. And God, who knows the heart, Testify to them, giving them, Cornelius' family, the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. As he said, by faith. Now, therefore, 
Why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus in the same way as they also are. So Peter's argument here is kind of like what he said when he reported back to the church after Cordelius. It was, look around you, see what God is doing, and join him. We should always be doing that, even in this church. Look around, see what God's doing, see where we're needed, and jump in. Be a member. And so Peter says, here's his argument. God has shown through the giving of the Spirit to these people that the Gentiles are included in the covenant. So who are we to tell God, no, that's not how it's going to be, okay? And so next, Paul and Barnabas are going to back up Peter's argument. They're going to they're going to they're going to like continue it. Uh, in verse twelve, all the people. Wait a minute, what am I doing? Yeah. So all the people kept silent. So Peter closed their mouth, and they were listening to Barnabas and Paul as they were relating what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So. They're just basically, you know, backing up what Peter's just said. Said, hey, he's talking about Cornelius. Well, we just went through all the area of Galatia, and we saw all kinds of stuff. Signs and wonders were being performed through us to the Gentiles. Gentiles were coming to belief in the Lord Jesus. They were being saved, baptized, receiving the Holy Spirit, and none of them were circumcised, and none of them were brought under the legalism that these guys were trying to push case okay, and <clears throat> so they're going to testify to the grace extended to the gentiles that's what they're doing they're relating their story of their first missionary journey so um their first their mission to galatius scholars think that the this entire council probably took about three days so there was a lot of debate and argument, a lot of things said. We're not told here. This is just kind of a condensed summation of the council. The basic arguments made against this legalistic view of salvation. But I think we could easily say that this, just that little thing there, where Paul and Barnabas stood up and related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles, that's probably about three hours right there. And then just relating, telling, here's, we went here, this happened, we went here, just the whole, telling them what happened. Basically tell them, here's what happened when we went to Galatia. So, the conclusion from their argument here is that every person from the PhD to the least taught child, high to the low, Slave to master, rich to poor, don't matter. Every person comes to God, comes into God's family the same way, okay, by the undeserved and unearned kindness of God. That's their argument. And so <clears throat> now James stands up. 
We haven't seen a whole lot of James. We saw him in the beginning. He was in the upper room. Uh, right on the day of Pentecost. Now, just real quick about James. <clears throat> James is important for several reasons, but one is that all the scholarship around the, the resurrection, proof of the resurrection, James is a very much part of that. James and Paul both, because... Well, I was listening to Gary Habermas today. He just, he just, he's writing this big four-volume magnum opus on the proofs of the resurrection. He's been studying the resurrection his entire adult life. He's got years and years and years of studying this, and he, in his book, has six minimal facts for proof of the resurrection. And guess who's one of them? James is, because he's mentioned by Paul. He sees him at Jerusalem. The main thing is, in the Gospels, James and his brothers, they don't believe in Jesus. You know, they, they come and they think he might be going a little crazy. That's what's recorded in the Gospel. They think he's off his rocker. Then the resurrect, then the, the crucifixion happens. As far as we know, James was not even there. Wasn't even at the cross because who did James tell his mother, I mean, Jesus tell his mother to go home with? John. So apparently James wasn't even there. He's not, it's not recorded that he was there. And But then suddenly, after the 40 days, James is in the upper room with the apostles. And Paul also records in it's the first Corinthians where he says, I gave this the first importance. And he says he, he appeared to James. He specifically names James that God, Jesus appeared to him bodily after the resurrection. And so now suddenly James is a believer. Not only that, he's a he's a leader of Jerusalem church, and he goes on to write an epistle. So there's a huge <coughs> change in James's view of Christ. Gospels, Acts. There's this, this sudden flip flop. And Gary Habermas's minimal fact is that. He did that because he saw the risen Christ. And that's one of his minimal facts as proof of the resurrection. Paul also is he, he is one of them. And this is supposed to be the actual brother of Jesus, right? This is the half, the earthly brother of Jesus. Let me give you a little info dump on James. We hadn't talked about him much. Is that okay to use that word, info dump? Sure. <laughs> I like it. Uh, <laughs> so... Old camel knees. Have you ever heard James referred to as old camel knees? No. Uh, every commentator I've listened to on this, both all mentioned camel knees about James. So apparently this is pretty well established in church history. This, you know, this is not scripture, so you know, be mindful of that. But uh, after some, so verse 33 through 21, this is James's speech. All right, James has just stood up. The, the room was, went quiet. Paul, uh, Peter says, here's what happened. We all, we all know that these Gentiles received the Holy Spirit. None of them were circumcised. Then Paul and Barnabas stand up. They give their account of their first uh, missionary trip into the region of Galatia, establishing a church there. And so after some time, Paul and Barnabas finished, and James stood up. Okay. 
if there had been silence before, there was absolute silence now, for James was the Lord's earthly half-brother. After the resurrection, Jesus had visited him personally. That's in the first Corinthians 15, verse 7, where Paul names James specifically that the Lord Jesus appeared to him bodily. Okay. Say it again. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And it, says, it goes on to say, called James the just because of his piety. When he died, his knees were allegedly callous like those of a camel because of his many hours of prayer. He was a pillar of the church. Reference to that is Galatians 1.19 and 2.9. Like I said, Galatians is very autobiographical for you know for Paul. He, he relates a lot of things in there that coincide with uh, scholars, your Evermaster scholars love Galatians. They consider it to be very credible because it because it, cor it it corresponds with other things in Scripture. You know, corroborates stuff. Yeah. Even the even the like the atheists, the critical scholars, all will accept Galatians as credible. Okay. So we see he was a pillar of the church, and he was the moderator of the assembly. Now considering this all important dispute. So the hopes of the Pharisaic sect rocketed as James stood to speak. Surely he would set Peter and Paul and Barnabas right. You know, he was a very scrupulous, fastidious Jew. So surely he's going to set he's going to set these guys right. He's going to be on our side about the temple and the sacrifices and the you know and the food dietary laws and all this stuff. But they were undoubtedly surprised at the apostles' response. For James showed how the conversion of Gentiles was in accord with the Old Testament scriptures. And then he, he gives us a, a little, some quotes from the Old Testament from Amos, I believe. Uh, yeah, from Amos chapter 9. And uh, so here's what he says. <clears throat> Verse 13, after they had stopped speaking, James answered, saying, Brethren, listen to me. Simeon, or Simon, Cephas, Peter, has related how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. That would be us. And with this, the words of the prophets agree. Just as it is written. After these things, I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. This is God talking. I'm going to do these things. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord. And here it is. And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from long ago. So James stands up and says, hey, man, prophets talked about all this. We, 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 we should not be surprised by this. And here's what I'm going to say. James is drawing a picture here of the, the, the new man, this one man in Christ. You're right. Jew and Gentile. Okay, we know that. But I think he's saying these people were going to... Or, we're going to be like two concentric circles, okay? 
in the center you have the Jews. That's this tabernacle of David. He says, after these things I'll return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen. I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. So this is that's Jews. Okay. And then he goes out to the next circle. So that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. Says the Lord, he makes these things known from long ago. So God's people will consist of two concentric groups. Gentiles who share the Messianic blessings without becoming Jews. Without becoming Jewish proselytes. They don't have to be circumcised. They don't have to become Jews in order to receive these messages because God has just He said the Gentiles would be included. He would call out from the Gentiles the people for his name. And um, so he's saying a Gentile, in order to be a Christian, does not have to become a Jew. When a Christian is saved, he does not become Jewish. We're not Jews. Okay? And when a Jew accepts Christ as their Messiah, they do not become Gentiles. We still remain two distinct. You're a Gentile or a Jew, but we're all one in Christ. Okay, does that make sense? That's kind of the picture we're seeing here. We're one man, but I'm not a Jew. Okay? And I don't have to become a Jew in order to come to Christ. I don't have to go by Mount Sinai to get to Calvary. That's not what God's about here. And He's we've seen it. We've seen Gentiles receive the Spirit. Right? We've seen them be saved by our, in our by our, with our own eyes. And this agrees with what the prophets said. Alright? And remember, at one point, there were no Jews. Before Abraham, there were no Jews. Jews were a people God called out for his name. A people he, to take for his own possession. And he's just saying, he's continuing this. This has been, God's been doing this for a long time, right? I was sitting here thinking, Craig, Abraham was justified before he ever was circumcised. Yeah. He believed God. God has been saving Gentiles for ages. At one time, we were all he said, we were all Gentiles before Abraham. Abraham was a Gentile until God made the covenant and he circumcised. And he was circumcised. That's when he became Jewish. And... Um, Think about Luke, when Jesus is at the synagogue, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah. We've talked about this before. <clears throat> Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah about the prophecy concerning the Messiah. He reads it. I have come to bring, you know, liberty to the captives and sight to the blind. Then he stops and he says, this prophecy has been fulfilled this day in your hearing. Everybody's like, yay, the Messiah's here. Nobody has a problem with that. Until he starts telling them about how God is saving Gentiles when he talks, remember the widow who Elijah went to, and he sustained her for three years during the famine. She was not a Jew, but God saved her. Same with Naaman, the Syrian leper, who comes and is cleansed of his leprosy. Gentile. And that's when the people get, ah, we're going to throw you off a cliff. <coughs> right? So that's kind of what we see at play here. God has been saving Gentiles for a long time. This is nothing we can 
tell God, you know, you're not allowed to save Gentiles. And so anyway, so next we come to James's judgment. Is, is all that okay? Is that making sense? Like, okay. So next we get to James's judgment. So we're going to call this James saves the day and us. Okay. So James gives his argument. Saying all this that they've been saying, it all agrees with what the prophets have said in days gone by. And here's his judgment. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. Underline that. That's, that's like a summary statement here of this council. This is, this is the council's decision about as far as salvation is concerned. Verse 19. Yeah, verse 19. Therefore, it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. That's kind of the summary here. But that we write to them that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. We've been talking about that for a minute. That seems to be four distinct things, right? Well, there's some disagreement about that. And then he goes on to say, For Moses, from ancient generations, has in every city those who preach him, since he is read in the synagogues every Sabbath. So here's James' judgment. He says, We're not going to trouble the Gentiles like this. Um... One second. Okay. So, James's judgment. Now, remember, Titus is here. Titus is the only Gentile in the room, as far as we know. The only uncircumcised man here. So, you know, he's on the edge of his seat. And because his future is very much tied into this, for he's going to be circumcised or not, where he's going to be put under the yoke of the law which I would imagine is much more concern to him than his foreskin. You know, I don't know, but that seemed, they both seem pretty uh, dreadful. And so he breathes a huge sigh of relief. James stands up, he gives his argument, he says, this is my judgment. Salvation is by faith in Jesus through grace, or through Jesus by grace, okay? That's the... Decision of the council. <clears throat> Praise Jesus. But that's the way it went. So let's look a little bit at uh, James's reasoning for these other words he says about we will write to them that they abstain from these the things contaminated by idols, from fortification, and from what is strangled, and from blood. Let me just say real quick. So I saw that those are four distinct categories. Um, idolatry, sexual um, immorality, a strangle would be dietary restrictions, and blood is like murder, shedding the shedding of blood. Okay, That's how I kind of read it, because I'm not looking at it in the Greek, so I can't be completely certain, but 
if I was forced to say what I think he's talking about here, I think he's talking about four different things. That blood is not a dietary thing. It's a violence thing. Restrain from violence. And my notes say strangled animals still have blood in them. Well, MacArthur's deal, he, he kind of says those are three categories that from what is strangled in blood is dietary. That when they say blood, he means something that still has blood in it, like a rare steak, say. Not, it hasn't been cooked till the blood's gone out of it. That's no no for a Jew to eat a, a rare steak or anything like that. I don't really, you know. You know, I'm, like I said, I'm not a Greek scholar, but I can't imagine that James would say, okay, y'all must restrain from eating certain things, but it's okay if you commit violence against your brother or your neighbor. You can shed blood. That's fine. I would think that would be one of the top restrictions. Refrain from shedding blood. Like it, it can be read either way. So, and I'm not sure. Sure, I'm just telling you what my view, my reading of the text is. Blood is not dietary, that's violence. Let me read you this. James' reasoning. Here's what R. Kent Hughes says about it. He has, he shares MacArthur's view. Uh, let's see, when I six. Okay, so James has some advice. To the, to the Pharisaical Jewish believers, he says, lay off of these new Gentile Christians. Don't trouble them. Um, how are we going to put a yoke on them that we ourselves c cannot bear and our fathers couldn't bear? Why would we saddle them to that? Okay. And to the Gentile believers, he gives three restrictions, this guy says. Stay away from anything that has to do with idols. Avoid fornication. Do not partake of meat that has been strangled or that has blood in it. I mean, that's, that question is not, you know, really pivotal, but it, I'm not sure... There. But anyway, he goes on to say there was to be no idolatry because there is only one true God and only he is to be worshipped. You know, uh, Jews very touchy about idolatry. And, well, we should be too. So he's saying, don't, don't be messing around with idols. Don't even go there. Fornication was forbidden in all cases because fornication was at that time rampant among the Gentiles. So notice that. Idolatry rampant among the Gentiles. Fornication, these temple prostitutes and whatnot, these big orgies and all, rampant among the Gentiles, among these pagans where these people are being called out from. Remember, they're being called out from paganism. Don't do that. Don't be messing around with idols. Don't be going to no temple orgies. Now, why the third restriction? Well, he tells us in verse 21. While the third restriction, quote, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogues. That's verse 21. In other words, Jewish communities existed in nearly every city, right? There's synagogues all over the place. They read the scriptures every Sabbath. And the Gentile converts were not to do anything that would offend the Jews' religious scruples. Okay. Well, let's, let's talk about something else real quick about this. Now, we read in Galatians, remember we read it the other day, that when they arrived at this council, 
This question was came up. Paul says, we did not submit to them for even one hour. Now why, and then, but we're going to see when he asks, when he wants Timothy to join him. Let's see. It's in chapter 16. Well, let's just read it. So Paul came also to Derbe at the Lystra, and a disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. And he was well spoken of by the brethren who were in Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted this man to go with him, and he took him and he circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those parts, for they all knew that his father was a Greek. So Timothy gets circumcised. Titus does not. Do you want to look at that in, again in Galatians? What Paul says, Galatians chapter 2, concerning Titus and circumcision, defending the gospel. He's, he's talking about this very event we're, we're looking at right now. Uh, chapter 2, Galatians 2. After, then after an interval of 14 years, I went up to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along also. It was because of a revelation that I went up. And I'm, you know, there's another thing I'm not sure about. Uh, Luke doesn't say anything about a revelation. He says the brother in sin. But he says here, there was a revelation. He got a word from the Lord telling him, go and speak at this council and, uh, you know, set, help, help with this debate. Go, go there. So he says it was because of a revelation that I went up. Unless he's referring to like the revelation of these guys trying to bring in legalism, I'm not. I think it's a different of viewpoint, right? Maybe this. Well, Luke, Luke's foretelling of the event would be secondhand knowledge, but but Paul's right. is firsthand yeah. information. Yeah, their their accounts are not going to line him, up exactly. Correct for him, it's a, uh, a revelation, and Luke's retelling it. So the because I was looking at this a second ago, the the dating seems to be off, and and. I know that the dating isn't inspired by God, right? But it's my, my Bible says that Galatians was written between 48 and 55. And then Acts was written in 62 to 64. Right. So that would be, that would have to be a retelling. This right. has already been years exactly. past. Already exactly. Good point. Anyway, that's just, that question is not what we're here for. So. Right. Uh, it was because of revelation I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But, okay, notice what he did. I did so in private to those who were of reputation. So he didn't just walk in there and start telling tell everybody, you're, you're big dummies. He, he went first and said, hey, have I been preaching? Am I wrong here? What's, what, you know, are, are we in agreement on what the gospel is? Have I run? Because he, he says, for fear that I might be running or had run in vain. And then he goes, here's what he did. But not even Titus, he was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty, which we gave, which we have in Jesus Christ, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. Okay, so. Contest for even a moment. A moment. Some, some say that. He says, basically, the point is, we didn't do what they wanted. We didn't capitulate here. So, Timothy, he circumcised. Titus is not. Why? Why? Anybody? 
because the question of the council concerning Titus is a salvation question. How is one saved? Is it by grace plus circumcision, or is it by grace alone? This is a salvific question they're talking about. And Paul is ain't about to say that Titus has to be circumcised in order to be saved. Now, later, after this edict we're about to read, and we know Paul wrote, you know, when I was with the Greeks, I was a Greek. When I was with the Jews, I was a Jew, in order that I might bring them the gospel. So that's why. Timothy gets circumcised because everywhere they're going, they're going to be coming in contact with Jews. They're going to be going in Jewish synagogues. Peace. Keep the peace. Don't offend anyone. We're just trying to get them to hear the gospel. We need, we're going to do whatever we have to do to make that happen. Okay. But when it comes to salvation, no, we're not going to move an inch on that. Salvation is by grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone. Okay. There's by no merit. We come to Jesus with nothing. Nothing in my hands I bring. Okay? Uh, just as I am without one plea. But that thy blood was shed for me. And that thou bidst me come. To thee, O Lamb, I come. I come. Who knows that song? I love that song. So that's what he's saying. We don't bring any merit of our own when we come to Christ. When we come to the Father, we have zero merit. Christ has the merit. He freely gives it to us by grace. Okay? He tells the Galatians in chapter 5, for, for, circumcision, for being circumcised or uncircumcised means nothing but faith working through love. That's why he doesn't circumcise Timothy, uh, Titus. He does circumcise Timothy. It doesn't matter whether you're circumcised or uncircumcised. It only matters in as far as how you're going to relate to the Jews, Jewish brothers. It does matter in relation to salvation. But other than that, who cares? He says it plainly. For neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means nothing. It's faith working through love. That's why this is so important. Anyway, I beat that horse to death. Uh, it's 10.23. Where are we at? That's a good stopping point. Well, that, that, I guess that's a good stopping point, I guess. Next will be the Jerusalem Decree, which is be the first apo uh, not, not apostle, epistle. We're going to see this is basically the first epistle written to the Gentiles. It comes from the Jerusalem Council. And I was really hoping we'd get farther than that, but... Kind of got sidetracked a little bit. Before we go, let me read y'all what's kind of we're going to take from this, okay? So James, in this uh, decree he's about to make, he gives us uh, two complementary principles for grace-filled living, okay? First, as those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others. As those under grace, we are not to make non-biblical requirements of others, specifically those that come from secondary cultural traditions. Okay? In that day, this meant not forcing a Jewish lifestyle on Gentiles. Today, this means we are not to make areas of our lifestyle 
that are not spelled out in Scripture are normative for others. Are they are not good Christians? Okay, we don't have the lockdown on good Christians here at Grace Point. Good Christians a sinner. For example, here's some examples: how we dress, how we run our church, the standards of living we think are proper, personal taste. Musical preferences, including in a worship service. We can't force another church to sing songs we like. We can only control songs we sing. And just because they don't sing the songs we sing don't mean they're lesser Christians than we are. And they're not saved. They're saved by grace, not by what songs they sing in their worship. Right? It's not by who stands in their pulpit and preaches. If Jesus says they're in, they're in. We don't get a say in that. Uh, Etc. And if we thrust any of these on others as necessary for a life of grace, we repeat the sin of the Judaizers. Second principle. Because we are under grace, we gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of others. Okay? There was not, in, there was not anything intrinsically wrong with eating a rare steak. But James said to boil it or eat it well done for the sake of fellowship with Jewish brothers. Paul states the same principle in 1 Corinthians 9, 19, 20, and 21. For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became a Jew, in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. That's the principle. Because we are under grace, we will gladly restrict our freedom for the sake of our brother. We do not want to make a weaker brother stumble. We don't want to be eating food, sacrificed to idols in front of a new Gentile Christian who just walked out of a temple of Zeus last week. Okay? So that's it. We'll stop right there. Next, we'll see the council's proclamation, this letter that goes out, and then we'll talk about that next week, and hopefully we'll finish 15. Anybody want to pray? Volunteers? Volatolds? Okay, Brock. <coughs> Gracious God, we thank you for another day. We 